Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. If you're looking for a new music podcast, take a listen to Alt Latino. It's a weekly dive into the world of Latin alternative music and culture. You'll hear Latino artists who are changing and challenging the status quo every week on Alt Latino from NPR Music at npr.org slash podcast and on the NPR One app. All right, here's the show. I won't trash talk. I won't be a divider-in-chief or an agitator-in-chief. I won't be out there blowharding, talking a big, big game without backing it up. I think the next president needs to be a lot quieter, but send a signal that we're prepared to act in the national security interests of this country to get back in the business of creating a more peaceful world. Please clap. <laughs> hey, y'all. Please clap for the NPR Politics Podcast. Oh, Jeb. Uh, we'll talk about him later. A lot to talk about this week. We are days away from the New Hampshire primary. We're going to cover last night's Democratic debate. We've got some cool words to discuss. Rubio Mentum. I think it's Marco Mentum, guys. I prefer Rubio Mentum. I think it's Marco Mentum. I don't Marco think anyone uses okay. that word. Mark- Sorry. Okay. All right. Marco Mentum, Trump or tantrums. And, of course, we will end the show with Can't Let It Go, where we all share a thing that we're a bit obsessed with this week. I am Sam Sanders, campaign reporter for NPR. I'm Tamara Keith, White House correspondent. I'm Susan Davis, and I cover Congress. And hey, from New Hampshire, I'm Asma Khalid, covering demographics and the campaign. All right, so how's it going up there? Oh, it's all right. It's starting to snow up here. Uh, Yeah, it was really nice yesterday before I left. Well, at least they know how to clear their roads up here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Ding. DC ding. (laughs) All right, before we get rolling, plug. NPR Politics has a newsletter now. You can sign up at npr.org slash politics. And don't forget to follow NPR's live coverage of the New Hampshire primary next Tuesday night there as well. All right, let's talk about Thursday night's Democratic debate. Uh, Sue, can you set us up for this? Right. So one minor thing before we go into the debate. The day before the debate that sort of set the tone going into it was a Twitter war between the Mm. Bernie Sanders campaign Mm -hmm. and the Hillary Clinton campaign. Explain. Which started with the Bernie Sanders campaign tweeting... You can be a moderate, you can be a progressive, but you cannot be a moderate and a progressive. And this set the tone going into the debate. And this, this came out of the town hall where, yes, where they talked about that, right? And Clinton has in the past described herself as a progressive. She has at times described herself as a moderate. She now likes to say uh, a progressive is someone who can make progress. But this philosophical divide over what does it mean to be a Democrat? What does being a progressive mean? And is Hillary Clinton one of them? set the stage going into the debate. And at the core of this argument right now in the Democratic Party is economic policy and mm. Wall Street and who's in the pocket of Wall Street. And Bernie Sanders' campaign and his allies have have presented Clinton as the candidate of Wall Street, in part because after she left the State Department, she has collected, I believe it's $675,000 in speaking fees from Goldman Sachs. Alone. There are lots Alone. of other speakers. And she was asked about it and said... Yes. And she was asked at a town hall, like, why did you take this money? And she said, well... Um, that's what they offered. So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, every, every Secretary of State... That I know is done. And she's also said she wasn't sure that she was going to run for president. It was at this period of time when she was still deciding. And at the time, she was just trying to earn some income. But um, there had this very uh, pointed exchange last night that I think illuminates this divide they're having in the party right now. You will not find that I ever changed a view or a vote because of any donation that I ever received. And I have stood up and I have represented my constituents to the best of my ability, and I'm very proud of that. So I think it's time to end the very artful smear that you and your campaign have been carrying out in recent weeks. And let's talk, let's talk about the issues. Let's talk about the issues that 
And let's let's talk about We both agree with campaign finance reform. Let's talk about issues. I've worked hard for McCain-Feingold. I want to reverse Citizens United. Let's talk about issues. Let's talk about issues. Let's talk about issues. All right, let's talk about why in the 1990s Wall Street got deregulated. Did it have anything to do with the fact that Wall Street provided, spent billions of dollars on lobbying and campaign contributions? Well, some people might think, yeah, that had some influence. And we should say that Hillary Clinton's campaign and the super PAC affiliated with her have received the most money from Wall Street donations outside of Jeb Bush. It's Jeb Bush, Hillary Clinton, Marco Rubio, as of the as the campaign sits today. So she does receive a lot of campaign donations from Wall Street. What she's saying is, sure, but you run for president, you're going to collect money from business interests. And you cannot say that I've ever changed a vote because of that. And, and let's have a bit of a historical analysis as well, because I, I mean, I think that the conversation, it's focused so much on who is a progressive, right, in the context of Barack Obama. And if you look at 2008, Barack Obama received a substantial amount of money from employees at Goldman Sachs, from, you know, sort of PACs or, or bundlers, you know, associated with Goldman Sachs. And, right. and I think that that's sort of been forgotten in this conversation. Well, and, and not also, to say that it's OK. I'm just thinking, like, let's have a bit of a historical. We, you know, Wall Street check. is also not as exactly ideological money. They like to bet huh. on the winner. And so Mm -hmm. when you look at where their money's going, it's starting to shift towards Rubio because they've Jeb Bush is faltering. Like it's not it doesn't go to where they the ideology is going to be. And they bet almost equally on both sides. So when they gave all this money to Obama in 08, it was because he was going to (laughs) win. And they wanted to be on the Wall Street wants to be on the side of the winner. So how predictive then is Wall Street money? Is seeing Wall Street money go to her saying that she might I mean, they do. It would be interesting to look back and see how much money Uh to who the winner was. But, you know, a lot of times it it's split almost 50 50 hmm. particularly yeah. going into uh when congress is taking up legislation to regulate uh, the industry i mean they spread that money around spread so the, wall street is, if, is redistribute the wealth the, it's, it's <laughs> pragmatic donation it's not necessarily uh, ideological donation gotcha i think that in that clip bernie sanders is talking about well in the 1990s wall street got deregulated and what he's saying without saying is and who signed that deregulation mm, yeah. bill? Oh, wait, that was Bill Clinton. But he never said Bill, right? No, no. he didn't say any. Yeah. He just says in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. But for people who are listening, uh-huh. you can he, hear, you can hear I mean. that yeah. this is a multi-layered attack in an area where Clinton is weak. So when she's talking about the economy and Wall Street and these ideas, she's seems like she's on the defensive, her mm-hmm. tone, her stance. Mm-hmm. But then when the conversation s- switches to foreign policy, she's on top. She's getting her sea legs a little bit more. She sounds a little bit more confident. And when they started, when Bernie used her vote in support of the Iraq war uh, in 2002, she turned it around on him. And what I thought was a really notable change of phrasing for her on this issue. Uh, not only did I vote against that war, I helped lead the opposition. And if you go to my website, hey, go. If, go ahead, 30 seconds. Look, we did differ. A vote in 2002 is not a plan to defeat ISIS. We have to look at the threats that we face right now, and we have to be prepared. And this has been Clinton's Achilles heel. I mean, this was at the fundamental heart of Barack Obama's case against Hillary Clinton in 2008, yeah. was that on the biggest foreign policy decision of our lifetime, she was wrong. And but it felt more salient at that time, yes. I think. I mean, well, right? it was we eight years ago. Engaged but I will and... tell you, among Democratic primary voters, like, this it's is a debate a that's still raging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the mm-hmm. fact that Clinton... I think she found a better answer to that question well, in this. And it's interesting because, like... 
after that, hearing Bernie talk foreign policy, he didn't sound as on it as she does. And I was at one of his stump speeches Wednesday in New Hampshire. Foreign policy is nowhere and know how part of his stump speech. It's not a thing that he wants to talk about. Well, I interviewed a friend of his several months ago, and his friend said, Bernie Sanders is right on gay marriage. Bernie Sanders is right on abortion. Bernie Sanders was right on the Iraq war. But he doesn't have passion on those things, his friend said. His friend said the thing he has passion on is economic inequality, income inequality, hmm. that suite of issues. And, you know, he marched with Martin Luther King. He he was right on gay rights before anybody else. All of those things, his friend says. But the passion just isn't there. Yeah. But the thing to remember is that the conversation has shifted so much in the country now where national security and foreign policy issues are just bigger parts of the conversation than, than we perhaps could have expected, say, even two years ago. I mean, it's just it's it shows you, though, that in foreign policy, which is a huge will be an even bigger issue as we get into the general election. I I don't get the sense that national security is as motivating to the Democratic primary voter as it is the Republican primary voter. You hear a lot more about ISIS and national security among those voters. But in a general election, that is going to be a major conversation. And Clinton tried to draw that distinction last night. She said a commander in chief needs to be able to be ready on day one. To be ready on day one. There is just too much un predictable threat and danger in the world today, you know, to try to just say, wait, I'll get to that when I can. That is just not well, an well, acceptable secret- no. Secretary Clinton, threat. And, and being a secretary of state with her resume, I mean, she does stand out more in foreign policy. And Bernie doesn't really try, and, like you said, he doesn't, like Tam said, he doesn't really try to engage on the issues as much as she does. So we have one more clip from this debate to talk about. Who wants to hit this? I I will get into this. This is Tam. Um, So in the debate, Bernie Sanders was asked about why his campaign has been running ads that seem to imply that he's been endorsed by newspapers that, in fact, have endorsed Hillary Clinton. Mm. So we never said, never said that somebody, a newspaper endorsed us that did not. What we did say is blah, 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 was said by the newspaper. Just to follow up on that, the title of the ad in question was endorsement. But the, uh, that was only for, that was not to be on television. That's, that's, that's an true. important point. Secretary Clinton, do you want 30 seconds on this issue? No. So to me, this is like Clinton's I don't care about your damn email moment. Uh, it's Clinton saying, all right, Bernie, you've done enough here. I'm not going to try to amplify it. And it was probably the right choice for her not to add on because people like Bernie Sanders. And if she added more, it would just be like she was piling on. And so, you know, I have to push back a little bit to the notion that everyone likes Bernie Sanders, you know, particularly within the Democratic activist base. Um, I mean, we we were talking just on email threads about some of the posts that have been going around about some women who feel that there's a really sort of sexist feminist argument against Hillary Clinton that's coming from Bernie supporters. I mean, I think there is a contingent of the liberal base, um, many of them women, who feel troubled by the rhetoric that's been spoken about this campaign, and they feel troubled by the groundswell of support for Bernie Sanders. So, you know, as we're talking about that, I've been seeing some really interesting stuff pop up in my Facebook feed this week. The first thing, there's this meme that's been popping around. It's from Tumblr. It's called Bernie or Hillary. And it's this fake campaign poster. And it has a photo of Bernie and a photo of Hillary. And it says issue. And then it's a blank space. So, like, one says issue, sleeping. Bernie says chugging vodka Red Bull. I'll sleep when I'm dead. And then Hillary says, plugging self into wall outlet. Robots do not need to sleep. Like the Mm. next one, issue, Harry Potter. Bernie says, huge fan, read all the books, know all the trivia. I bet Hillary doesn't even know what a muggle is. And then Hillary says, I'm a huffle pump. 
And so, like, it's his, it's his portrayal of Hillary as perpetually uncool. And some folks online are saying, hold up, that's sexist. And so mm. we're at this point in the campaign where a lot of the things that Bernie people are saying or Bernie fans are saying, folks that support Hillary are saying, is, is this sexist? How are we talking about her? Is it right or wrong? And I'm not sure how I feel about any of it, but in some ways it feels a little bit similar to the really, really nuanced conversations in the OA primaries about whether or not Hillary supporters were kind of being racist or not. I think when we talk about does someone see it as sexist, it comes from the standpoint that I think that women get offended by the idea that women aren't funny mm-hmm. and that yeah. Clinton mm-hmm. is, you know, that they can't be. And that especially for younger women. And I, I don't know why I'm associating this in my mind, but it's like the the same argument that like comedy writers like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler have talked about this idea that like women aren't funny and that they're defined that way. And then I think it's like this idea that because they can't be funny and they're putting that on Clinton and for younger women who see who have a more expansive view of that, I think it's really offensive to them. That's, and particularly because it's not as if Bernie has has shown a great sense of humor on the campaign trail. It's, it's not mm. like he gets these laugh lines everywhere he goes yeah. and there is this natural contrast of humor between them. He's a fairly humorless guy. Also, he is He's not... ironically funny. Yeah. Like, Bernie Sanders can wear a frumpled suit with a tie with food on it. I haven't seen food on it. But he, Bernie Sanders can, can do... Whatever he can look he wants. disheveled, and he, yeah. he can look disheveled, and disheveled is cool. Yeah, Hillary Clinton. If Hillary's hair was messed up. Oh my god, it would lead me to. And, and, and that then I see are some like, truth to the sort of sartorial choices and, and the degree to which sort of society judges. I think the way that a woman dresses or a woman, you know, a woman's hairdo, sort of more strictly than they do a man's. But to the same point, though, I mean, we see a number of other men running, particularly on the GOP side who I think do sort of pay attention to both the way their hair looks and their clothes look. I mean, so... But I also think that Hillary Clinton is a unique woman and that she is Hillary Clinton. And she has a history and a legacy and a baggage. Like, you can't compare Hillary Clinton to the way that other women are treated because she is in her own stratosphere. Right. And I mean, and and both a stratus. She is in her own stratosphere in terms of the number of hits she has taken over the years yes. and the way she is treated. And, you know, and also she is the biggest, most prominent politician, woman, poli- right now. female. Yeah. Well, any politician, yeah. not just female. Politician. And she also afflicted this at the debate last night in the sort of yeah. the closing arguments she where she said she has weathered every possible attack that could be weathered against her and that she's tested and ready for a general election. And it also will put whoever the nominee is into the spotlight. I've been vetted. There's hardly anything you don't know about me. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that whoever is in that position, uh, Senator Sanders or anyone else who might have run, will face the most withering onslaught. So, And it was kind of like, can this guy handle it, was the subtext of her argument. And that she's like, I've already done it. And that there, everything there is to know about me, you already know. And it's going to be a fight about the issues and not personality. I would say that the Republicans are still going to make this about personality with Hillary Clinton. Oh, yeah. But it is true that for a lot of this country, Bernie Sanders is still a relatively unknown guy. Yeah. All right. Next, we're going to cover the GOP side of the race in New Hampshire and beyond. But first, a really, really quick break. We'll be right back. We'd like to say a quick thank you to one of our sponsors who brings us the following message, Stamps.com. Stamps.com helps businesses avoid time-consuming trips to the post office. With Stamps.com, use your own computer and printer to print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mail carrier picks it up. No more wasting time going to the post office or wasting money on expensive postage meters. 
Right now, sign up for Stamps.com for a special offer, a four-week trial, plus postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone, and type in politics. Okay, we are back. We're going to talk about the GOP. But I want to acknowledge um, the firstness in many ways with this caucus night. Ted Cruz won the Iowa caucus for the GOP. He's the first Latino to ever win an Iowa caucus. On the other side, Hillary Clinton won. She's the first woman to win an Iowa caucus. And then Bernie Sanders, as you were saying, Tam. Yeah, and Bernie Sanders got some delegates, making him the first Jewish candidate to win delegates in a primary. So three big firsts. And I feel like the media narrative did not acknowledge those things, which was weird to me. Well, I think everybody was too obsessed with the near tie and Hillary Clinton almost losing Iowa. Yeah, that's true. Which is it's yeah, it's a funny thing because. Because she she won, but it's like she lost. Yeah. Speaking of other winners, Marco Rubio came in third in Iowa, but he was still kind of a winner. Let's talk about this. He gave a victory speech. He came out and he gave. <laughs> he did. He's like, yeah. when I'm, I'm the nominee. When I am our nominee, we are going to unify this party and we are going to unify the conservative movement. And didn't he say like this is the moment? So this is the moment they said would never happen. And so people were like, no, this is exactly what was predicted, that you would come in third. But a third, I, I mean, to be fair, I think he, he finished stronger numerically, perhaps, than like people 20%, expected. Like 20 percent, right? Yeah. But mm-hmm. he almost beat Trump for second. Yeah. So what's the state of the race now? Trump lost to Cruz, but Trump is still up in New Hampshire. By a lot. Rubio was becoming more the establishment lane guy. What is the state of this race right now? So coming out of Iowa on the Republican side, it quickly is looking like it's becoming a three-way race. Now, New Hampshire will be the next test of that, but that it is a Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, Marco Rubio race. And what we see going into New Hampshire is you have Donald Trump focused almost entirely on Ted Cruz, who he sees as his main rival. And then you have this secondary fight between Marco Rubio and the rest. Who are? Who are uh, the ma- the governors mainly, Jeb Bush, Chris Christie, John Kasich. And we're seeing the governors, mainly Jeb Bush and Chris Christie, now turning their targets towards Marco Rubio. And colluding, right? To, including to put a slow down the Marco momentum. Though they deny <laughs> that there's full collusion. I, I thought I've heard Chris Christie sort of deny those reports. So there right? are reports that they've been talking about this together? Explain. So, someone explain this for me. So the New York Times did a story that reported that campaign aides, not the Principles, but campaign aides to both Jeb Bush and Chris Christie have had back channel conversations, essentially mm. saying, you know, the enemy of my enemy is it's my like friend. It's like Survivor. And should maybe we not Alliances. focus our guns on each other because we're both kind of battling to survive and let's try and take Marco Rubio down a peg. Uh, Chris Christie has notably upped his attacks towards Rubio. Yeah, oh, real. Yeah. Mm. In a very obvious way. The bubble boy stuff. Chris Christie. Chris Christie has been attacking him really hard. Yeah. You know me, unlike some of these other campaigns, I'm not the boy in the bubble. Okay. We know who the boy in the bubble is up here, who never answers your questions, who's constantly scripted and controlled because he can't answer your questions. So when Senator Rubio gets here, when the boy in the bubble gets here, I hope you guys ask him some questions. And so if you notice that, he actually mentioned, you know, when when Senator Rubio gets here. So those remarks were made here in New Hampshire before Senator Rubio had even gotten in from Iowa because both Chris Christie, actually Chris Christie, Ohio Governor John Kasich, and former Florida Governor Jeb Bush were all campaigning in New Hampshire on Monday night and into Tuesday morning before the other candidates got here. 
I mean, Jeb Bush has been after Rubio from day one. I mean, he spent millions of dollars in ads in Iowa to try and knock him down. His super PAC. And they used to be friends. His super PAC. His super PAC. They used to be friends. I mean, Jeb Bush in some ways mentored Rubio, some folks say. I mean, in Florida, you meet a lot of people, I will say, who felt torn between them. When I was down there for the GOP state convention, their their names are mentioned often in the same breath. Yes, for sure. It's not as much of an Obi-Wan Luke situation as we think it is, though. (laughs) Um, And so, but it's it's also elevated Rubio to that extent that all these other competitors are now focusing on him. I think if we have another Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, whatever the order is, if those three are the top three finishers again in New Hampshire, this is even further going to become seen as a three-way race. And it's going to be even harder for the governors to continue on. So here's my question. Is Marco Mentum real? I mean, we had seen some polling that said that there really wasn't an establishment lane or that the establishment lane is really small. If Marco Rubio can't win New Hampshire, if one of these governors can't win New Hampshire, and New Hampshire is totally an establishment kind of state. Where can they win? Where where can they win? I think that's a totally Not South Carolina. question. <laughs> and this is like the fundamental question about the Rubio campaign is, can you win the nomination and not win a state? I mean, where do you win? <laughs> and you yeah, when does he yeah. start winning? Like, what is this, where is the state you come in first? And that's still not really clear. Do we know which state it might be even? I, I can, mean, people I talk even... a little bit about Nevada and, and you know, oh, Nevada. it has a large Latino population. But at the same time, you know, Donald Trump has also been, you know, polling well in Nevada, from my understanding. I mean, he seems to just poll well across the country. And I do like the Trump Tower. There in in Las Vegas. (laughs) In Las Vegas. I've played the report. It's really quite nice. Yeah, it is really quite nice. But speaking of Trump, um, I listened to his appearance at Exeter Town Hall Thursday. And he did one of these things that he has not done in a while. He took questions from the people that were there. And it seems like he's trying to make more of a push for a little more retail politics because it's that might have hurt him not doing enough of that in Iowa. He's playing the New Hampshire he's playing game. The New Hampshire game. But listen to this tape when he tried to do it. It did not actually go off too well. Let's have a few questions. Go ahead. A few questions. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. I live in California. You live in Southern California. What are you doing here? Are you are you a liberal Democrat by any chance? Uh, he called this one. Who, who told you to be here, Bernie? This is no, no. This is a Bernie plan. A Bernie plan. He this told some other Bernie questioner, plan. "I don't like your question." Like this is a guy who seems like he doesn't want to do retail politics, and when he does do it, he doesn't quite get it right. The point's to be nice to them, and it's like, like I just can't imagine Donald Trump shaking hands and kissing babies. He don't want to do it. That just sounded like the Jerry Springer show. <laughs> <laughs> Now, voters are being treated like Donald Trump has treated his opponents, has treated the media. The and apprentice. now when he's engaging it's like he's on with the apprentice voters, talking about your fire. he's consistent. So I wonder just how much that that'll actually gain traction right before the New Hampshire primary. I, I was at an event of his the other night and it was in an indoor tennis club and there were thousands of people in the crowd and he took no questions. Right. So to the degree that he can continue doing those type of events, maybe he doesn't need to do retail politics. My question about Trump in New Hampshire is if he doesn't win there. You know, if it's another second done? place finish oh, he's for toast, Trump, right? Is he? I, but, you know, that's my he, question. But he's strong in South Carolina, he right? He tried to set expectations the other night. He did a press conference before the event that I was at, the one I mentioned at the indoor tennis club, and he was asked this question, right, about finishing second in Iowa and how would he feel about not winning first in New Hampshire? And he said that he would like to win in New Hampshire, but if he doesn't, it wouldn't be horrible. And to me, that was such an interesting moment of kind of setting expectations in advance about New Hampshire. The thing about Donald Trump, though, is he's a winner. He's for winners. We're all winners. And everybody else is a loser. If he keeps losing, 
then it seems like the whole mystique is gone. But he's up by a lot right now in New Hampshire, yeah. correct? And so and is his, Bernie Sanders. His supporters don't seem phased by his loss in Iowa. I mean, I talked to a number of people who said that, you know, we didn't expect him to do well in Iowa. Iowa's more religious. They talk a lot about faith issues. And, and one woman told me, I saw Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio pandering to that crowd. And they thought that Donald Trump didn't pander and that that gave him additional strength. I did not meet a supporter in the crowd who felt in the least bit phased by the results in Iowa. Okay, so if you're listening to this after Saturday, there will have already been another GOP debate. What's at stake for who? Marco Rubio, I think, is whether he can carry forward the Marco momentum. Uh, on the debate stage. He's tended to have pretty good debate performances all along. Yeah, But he's, so far at his events, he's been asked by reporters to sort of punch back, you know, Chris Christie said this about you, and he has tried so hard to stay above the fray. He does not punch back publicly. And he'll have to answer some of the critiques that I think so far he's tried not to. And again, I still think for the governors, they have sort of one more chance to kind of break away from the pack or try and change the narrative going into New Hampshire, which they haven't had a great shot at so far. And the stage is still going to be very crowded. Speaking of who's going to be on the stage, it's time for some obituaries, some eulogies, (laughs) those candidates that have uh, left us behind. Um, There were several dropouts this week. Martin O'Malley, Rand Paul, Mike Huckabee, Rick Santorum, RIP, rest in peace. Now, what song, what what funeral dirge should we play for these campaign exits. We're very divided on this Yes, I, I was saying, well, actually, Sue was saying we should play Crossroads yeah. by Bone Thugs and Harmony. This was a jam. Isn't it a jam? It's, like, it's a, a jam. It's such a jam. It, turn it up, turn bomb. it up. I'm in New Hampshire. I need better volume. <laughs> and shout out to Sue for picking it, because you're an OG like that. That's true. Yeah. Alright, here's some music for you. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Can't Let It Go. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from the Great Courses Plus Video Learning Service, providing unlimited access to a wide variety of videos on topics like history, science, literature, and personal development. You can watch the Great Courses Plus on your TV, tablet, laptop, or phone. At thegreatcoursesplus.com politics, they're giving listeners an opportunity to watch the fundamentals of photography, as well as hundreds of other courses free. To access this offer, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com politics. Support for NPR and the following message also comes from Personal Capital, combining free online financial tools that provide unprecedented transparency with personal attention from dedicated financial advisors. The result is a complete transformation in the way you understand, manage, and grow your net worth. On the web at personalcapital.com politics. Okay, we are back. It's time for Can't Let It Go, the final segment of our show where we all share a thing that we cannot stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Uh, Sue, you're going to go first? Yeah, so I, you know, the thing I can't let go this week was the Iowa caucuses. On Monday, I know it's Friday. We were <laughs> Monday, feels like forever ago. and I have been obsessing about it all week. It is the way that the Democrats caucus, which has gotten a lot of attention this week. We've talked about uh, how close it was that it, it required coin tosses to decide some of these delegates. That there was there's ongoing anger between the Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders camps over who won what and whether this process has integrity. And it just seems the way that the Democrats do their caucuses 
needs to change. And that it's, I mean, we all covered Iowa, the con, the, the math and how they award the delegates. And it's just really obscured the process and opened it up to question the integrity of it. And particularly for the Democratic Party that has made as a founding principle of its party, the concept of one man, one woman, mm-hmm. one vote. Every vote should count. Yeah. Just do hard tallies. Just do a hard vote. Count the numbers. And just do it so there's no question about who wins what delegates and how. And what's interesting is that we close this week with the one word no one's saying about the caucuses is that they're actually democratic. They feel in some ways very undemocratic. Yes, they feel like it's like a machine, like it's done behind closed doors, that there's this element to it that like you don't entirely understand how it works, which I think is what opened the Clinton campaign up to these charges from Sanders supporters that, hey, maybe there was some funny business with the rules, something fishy. So just do what it takes to eliminate that doubt. Okay, let it go. So, Tam, what can you not let go this week? I cannot let go of the mad dash from Iowa to New Hampshire. Yeah, we both did that. We this both week. did it within like a half an hour of the speeches being given. Everybody was on an airplane somewhere in Des Moines, and then all of those airplanes landed at roughly the same time, about four thirty in the morning. So early. Oh my gosh! At the especially if you haven't slept all night at the air terminal uh, in Manchester, New Hampshire. I get off the plane and. There are people from the Bernie plane. There are people from uh, some other random press charter. I walk into the terminal, and there is one of Marco Rubio's top consultants. Next thing I know, I look up, and Ted Cruz is walking through the air terminal <laughs> carrying one of his daughters who Which was asleep. Which daughter? The I one know. that wouldn't kiss him? She was under a coat. Oh. Okay, because there's, there's, there's that video of him trying to kiss his daughter, and she's like, uh-uh, back uh-uh. it up. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't know which one it was, but this one was sleeping and under a coat. It was the weirdest scene I yeah. have ever seen. All of these correspondents, you know, Jake Tapper and and Major Garrett and every reporter I have ever met on any campaign I have ever yeah. covered, all in the same room at the same time because and all like trying to find their luggage. Yeah. All right. Uh, Asma, what can you not let go this week? Um, so it's this video that was in the Washington Post. I want to say February 1st, right? It was Monday that I saw it. Yeah, Yeah. and and so before the votes were cast, they kind of wanted to see how the presidential frontrunners, how the candidates looked through the eyes of kids, and it is brilliant. Can we can we play a bit? All right, guys, we're gonna watch a video of Bernie Sanders now. If you have any opinions while he's talking, you're feel free to say them out loud. And when we're done, we're gonna talk about it. Okay, everyone, ready to watch Bernie Sanders? Yes. One, two, three. We have more people in jail than any other country on earth. He sounds like he's angry. I'm guessing he has a lot of ties. To take back our government. I think um, that his teeth are real clean. <laughs> kids. And so this, this goes the on and things. on. You know, there's six kids in this room, and they watch about a minute worth of debate snippets from different presidential candidates, both Democrats and Republicans, and then offered their take on, on everything. And what's interesting is so many of these are about sort of personal um, looks, you know. Final thoughts on Ted Cruz. I think he's fat. He, I think he's crazy. There was one yeah, little moment where I think, um, I, I think somebody oh, said something about Donald Trump not liking Latinos. And one of the little boys goes, oh, I think I'm Latino. No, I'm Latino. I'm Latino. I think. I'm Latino. I don't know. It looks like Donald Trump 
like doesn't have no hair. Am I Latino? (laughs) And I thought that was such an interesting moment because as much as people focus on, you know, sort of cultural, personal identity and politics, you know, for a kid who's just a kid, they probably don't even know what they are. Those labels are put on people with time and age. So I have a thing that I can't let go this week. Yeah. And it's kind of a story that I've felt has gone under the radar with all the focus on New Hampshire and Iowa. But uh, this week, minutes ahead of the filing deadline, Black Lives Matter activist DeRay McKesson filed papers to run for mayor of Baltimore. And this is interesting for many reasons. Um, He's quite fascinating to me. He's really, really charismatic. Uh, So polished already. Like, he's obviously going places, whether you like what he stands for or not. But this highlights for me what I've seen as maybe not even a shift in strategy, but like a further reveal of the strategy of the Black Lives Matter movement, they're going local. Hmm. They're going local. And I talked with one of the founders of the hashtag of Black Lives Matter. We talked about two weeks ago. Her name is Alicia Garza. And over the course of our conversation, I was like, tell me how BLM works. And she was like, well, here's the thing no one understands. We're a network. We have over 30 chapters throughout the country and the world. And the National Black Lives Matter apparatus is just there to support them and to amplify their message. So the real work they're doing, it's on the ground in local police departments, local city councils, local, like their whole thing is local. And if you think about it, you know, as far as the national election, for a while they were in that conversation, they've stopped trying to do that. Yeah, they're not like interrupting Bernie events anymore. They've stopped that. that They've gone local. Absolutely. I mean, if you are trying to change policing tactics, if you are trying to improve the the lot of of people in cities and towns around America, then the front line are cities and towns around America. Exactly. And I mean, like, there is an interesting dynamic with Black Lives Matter. Like, DeRay is not in charge of Black Lives Matter, nor is Alicia Garza, who I spoke to. It's a very diffuse network, and they call it leaderful, not leaderless. But, like, (laughs) sometimes it's hard to figure out who is in charge, and they kind of want it that way. Everybody and nobody. There you go. Yeah. Sam, there is one more thing, though, that, (laughs) that the rest of us can't let go. What is that, Tamara? Sam, is... do you want to do the honors? Or can can the I tweets. set it up? Can set you set it, it up? So and I'll read I would the say that um, this week, one of my favorite 2016 campaign reporters. <laughs> oh well, thanks, Boo. Had a rather <laughs> hilarious, if particularly if you if you've ever had to try to get to something on time, it doesn't even have to be a campaign event. If you've ever been trying to rush somewhere for work and something goes terribly awry, you might be able to relate to Sam Sanders this week. Yes. So here's the setup. I will uh, read you the tweets, but basically. <laughs> <laughs> this Thursday, yesterday, after a, a week plus traveling for work and for a friend's wedding, I was frazzled. And this sleep happened deprived. to me. Yeah, sleep I deprived, mean, all that. sleep deprived. Yes, yes. So here we go. Tweet number one. Twitter friends, gather around and let me tell you a rather funny story. I have been on the road for over a week now. Get to Manchester on Bernie Sanders' jet. File a story from the airport. Go on to follow Bernie for his first stops in New Hampshire post-Iowa. I'm tired, but pushing through. Tweets continue. My editors are like, okay, Sam, take Wednesday off, but cover Donald Trump in Exeter, New Hampshire, on Thursday. I'm like, cool. New yes, Hampshire. New Hampshire, where the okay, primary is yeah, going New to Hampshire, be. New Hampshire, New Hampshire, New Hampshire. New Hampshire's key. Keep Pay New attention Hampshire to that. Mind. Yes. So on Wednesday, I head from Manchester to Cambridge and Boston because I know those parts and day off. I wake up Thursday morning feeling weird in Cambridge, but I'm like, whatevs, it's cool. On to Exeter, got to cover Trump. <laughs> And here, my friends, is where it turns left. 
Two Uh-oh. hours after leaving Boston, I end up in Exeter at Exeter Town Hall in Rhode Island. Exeter? <laughs> Y'all. Rhode Island. Not the right state. When I, so I, I'm like driving up <laughs> and I'm to, like. But to be fair, as someone who, you know, was living in New England, in Boston, and so you could probably attest to this as well. You spent a lot of time mm-hmm. up there. I mean, these towns are named the same name in There's almost like every names single of state. towns. In but <laughs> like, the, I had this moment. So one, I'm driving up and I'm like, huh, where are the camera crews? Where's the traffic? What's going on? And then I park and I'm like, oh. huh. And then I'm like, let me look at Google. And I open oh. it up and it says Rhode Island. And like my stomach dropped <laughs> to my pinky toe, and like I, I've never been so simultaneously afraid, humiliated, embarrassed. Afraid, well, afraid of calling your editor? Oh yeah, because I was like, oh, this is it. I'm getting fired. When can I file for unemployment? This is this is the end. I just oh. love too that you got in a car from Boston and drove south <laughs> for an hour and a half, and I kept seeing the signs that said like, south, south, and I was like, south, oh, that's south. weird. But I trust Google. You're Google's like, got my back. I didn't know New Hampshire moved. So like, there was this moment where I realized I have to call my editor. And say sorry, I'm gonna miss that event I'm supposed to cover because I can't get there in time, and <laughs> also I'm, I'm an, an idiot. So I call my I'm editor, and I'm like, first words out of my mouth, and I will um, not say the bad word that I said, but I said, I effed up. <laughs> and she's like, what? And I was like, I'm in Rhode Island. <laughs> and so she resets. She has a moment, and she's like, it's okay. <laughs> These things happen. Oh. You're tired. It's fine. Please it's clap. True. Please, Please clap. clap for <laughs> Editor is Bay this week. Um, thanks for being so kind about the dumbest mistake ever made on the campaign trail. Oh, it's probably not actually the dumbest, <laughs> but it is the awesomest. <laughs> Still a long way to go, guys. Yeah. We got, okay. what, nine more months of this? Anyway, that is all the time we have for this week. Let us know if you like the show. Find us on Twitter at NPR Politics. You can also email us, nprpolitics at npr.org. And you can catch our political coverage on your local public radio station as well. I am Sam Sanders, campaign reporter for NPR. I'm Tamara Keith, White House correspondent. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and politics. All righty. We will be back with an episode wrapping up the results of the primary next Wednesday. Until then, thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Please clap. Clap.